Welcome to the Imago Day Eastside Gathering Podcast. Good morning, Eastside. <laughs> There's always something, isn't there? We first get up, we try to get to church, we try to do the right thing, and something happens. The kids go crazy, there's traffic, there's all kind of stuff. Mike gets, you know, broken or whatever the thing is. But that's okay. We showed up, we're here, and we are going to be just fine. All right, so we are in a series in the book of Hebrews right now. And today, I'm going to look at Hebrews 3. Mike looked at Hebrews 1 a couple of weeks ago, Alex, Hebrews 2 a little while ago. Last week, we took a commercial break, and Mike talked about prayer and fasting, which technically, if you think about the spiritual life, all the rest of this stuff is a commercial break, and prayer is the main program. Prayer is the thing that matters. That's right. You can clap. It's all good. So today, we are going to look at Hebrews 3, and we're going to take it in chunks today, because Hebrews 3 is, is kind of dense. It has a lot to say, and it, has, it doesn't seem to have a lot to say, but there's a lot of it to say, and we have a long way to go and a short time to get there. So I'm going to ask you to be patient with me, and what I want you to do is really truly um, posture yourself in such a way where you are listening to what it is the Holy Spirit has to say to you in these passages. Because what will happen is, as I talk is certain things will, will jump out at you. And I want you to just kind of take those things in and soak them up like a sponge, all right? So the first chunk is going to be Hebrews 3, 1 to 6. And let's look at that passage. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. All right. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. Put a pin in that. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So in chapters one and two of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews actually talked about Jesus being apostle and priest. And by apostle, he meant God's messenger, the one who was sent out, and priest, the one who was sent to God. So if we really think about what those two things are, they were very important to the people of Israel. The messenger is the person who went to the people on behalf of God. And the priest was the one who went to God on behalf of the people to make sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews compares Jesus to Moses. Now, what he does in the first couple of chapters is he starts by saying, look, I know it matters to you that there is a messenger that comes straight from God. And I know that it matters to you that there is a priest who goes to God on behalf of the people. 
So Moses was actually those two things in one person. Moses was their guy. Moses was their national hero. If somebody said, who is, you know, who is, he, he was the Tom Brady of, of his team, right? Moses was the guy. Moses was the one they, they darn near worshiped. And they identified themselves most with Moses and He was the bringer of the law. He was the person who led them out of Egypt. He was the person who led them as they were in the wilderness. And it's important to understand that Moses' reputation, Moses' cred, if you will, was what it was not by accident. As a matter of fact, what God says about Moses is very interesting because there was a situation where Aaron and Miriam were talking smack behind, behind Moses' back. And God says to Moses, this is what I'm going to need you to do. Go, go get those two and, and bring them to me. And I don't know... How many of you know some black mothers, but when they, when, when they do this, this was what God did. God, God tells Moses, I need you to go get Aaron and Miriam, and I need you, when he brings them to the tent, God just kind of leans in and just kind of goes, you two, come here. So they, so they exactly, uh-oh, I heard somebody say it. So, so they come up, and, and God says to them in the book of Numbers in, in 12, 5, and 8, he says, then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. You know they're in trouble when God comes down in a cloud, and he stands at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them stepped forward, and you know they didn't step forward. You know they, they kind of stepped forward. So when the two of them stepped forward, God says, listen to my words. Listen up. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. With him, I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So he calls them to him and he says, let me tell you who Moses is. See, because you don't seem to understand who Moses is to me. Moses is my friend. Moses is somebody that I speak to face to face. Moses is somebody who I don't speak to in riddles. And so when you, when you look at that, God is saying, God is saying, he's special, And so it's not an accident that Israel saw Moses as special or they saw him as somebody who matters. He was was special to God, and God says that to them straight out. When Moses is is about to die, it says in in the account of Moses' death in Deuteronomy 34, it says, since then, since Moses, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all of the officials into this whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in sight of all Israel. But Moses himself understood that he was not God's final word on things. Moses himself said in Deuteronomy, he said, he said to the people of Israel, God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, meaning like him, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I I command him. 
I myself will call to account everyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So when you see that picture, when you see Aaron and Miriam who come to God and God holds them account, holds them to account for what he has said to Moses and they don't listen, that was a metaphor. That was a, a foreshadowing of what was going to happen in the future. God said, I will send somebody who is like Moses, but who is not Moses. And he is going to tell you some things that I tell him to tell you. And when he tells you, I'm going to need you to listen. And so Stephen, when he is being stoned to death in the book of Acts, makes reference to the prophet. He makes reference to the fact that Moses actually said this to the people, and he's telling them, and you all didn't even listen. You killed Jesus. When John the Baptist came, one of the first questions that they ask him is, are you the prophet? Are you the guy that Moses spoke about? And he has to explain to them that he is not the prophet. And so then you get to the writer of the book of Hebrews, and he is explaining to Israel that the prophet was Jesus and that the prophet was better than Moses. Now, you guys have a lot to say about Moses. You think he's amazing and he's incredible, but, but Moses is to the house as, as the house is to the builder. And so he's saying, he's saying Moses didn't establish the house. God made the house. And he says that Moses is a servant in God's house, but Jesus is the son over God's house. So he needs them to understand that Jesus is better than all of those things. Because when you look at how he sets up the whole book, he starts in one and goes through two. And he says, look, he's better than the angels because he is more than just a messenger. He is the living word of God. He's better than the priests because he's not just the person who goes to God on behalf of the people. He's also the sacrifice. He's the words that are said to God. He is the whole reason you have atonement for your sins. And now he gets to Moses. And he says he's better than Moses because even though God said Moses is a servant in all my house, Jesus is my son. And he is the, he is the son over the whole house, meaning he's over, he's over Moses. So what he's saying is Jesus is where we find our identity now. It used to be Moses, but we are his family now. We are Jesus's family now. And he refers to them as holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Moses saw God's glory. Jesus shares God's glory. It pleased God in Colossians to say that everything God says, everything I am, my fullness I put in Jesus. And when you think about that, that, that's pretty amazing because God is referred to a number of times and he is the invisible God. But if the invisible God stood in front of a mirror, what you would see in the mirror is Jesus. If you want to know whether or not God likes broccoli, ask Jesus. Because Jesus will tell you, he don't like broccoli. He will, just, he will just tell you that because Jesus knows the fullness of God is found in Jesus Christ. And God said, it pleased me to do that. And so now Jesus, fully God and fully man, sits at God's right hand. So Moses bore witness, it says in this passage, to what would be spoken by God in the future. 
He, Moses, like everything else in Scripture, was pointing at Jesus. A lot of us read the Bible and we struggle with it, right? We struggle with it because we're just not quite sure what happened with Job or we're not quite sure what happened in Ruth or we don't quite understand how to unravel the situation with David being a man after God's own heart and doing all the things that he did and getting up to the shenanigans he got up to. But at the end of the day, if we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it is a book that points, every story points, every Metaphor points, and everything points to Jesus. If you write stories, the best stories are those that point at a truth. And everything in the story should also point. Things in a story that don't point should not be in a story, for those of you who write. And the Bible is no different. Everything in that book points at Jesus. All creation points at Jesus. If you want to really understand what it means for God to hear the cries of his people and then come to their aid when you look at how he sent Jesus or how Israel happened with, with Egypt and all of that situation, just look at your body and look at how when you are exercising your body, your cells start to cry out for oxygen. And when they cry out for oxygen, they put pressure on the heart, which puts pressure on the lungs, which make you go... <sighs> And you inhale, and oxygen comes to see about the cells in the same way through the blood, right? It ain't that deep, really. Who God is is in your very person. The way we are changed from glory to glory can be seen in the way a butterfly changes. Some of it is seen. Some of it is not seen. The result is seen. The beauty of a flower carries its reproductive organs. Why? Because it attracts. And so when we allow our lights to shine before men, men will see our good works and do what? Glorify our Father in heaven. And we can reproduce because people are attracted to the love that we have one for another. All creation points. The day after Jesus feeds the 5,000, a crowd shows up, and Jesus knows they're just there for the sandwiches, but he tells them not to work for food that will, that will spoil, but that they should work for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, he says, can give you. Because on him, the Son of Man, God has placed his seal of approval. And then they ask, what do I need to do to get that enduring food? And Jesus says, the work of God is this. To believe the one he sent. To believe in the one he sent. And their response, of course, is, well, what sign are you going to show us? And, and what are you going to tell us? Because, see, uh, in Moses, our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. And as it is written, and they're, how, do, how, do you, how do you tell the word as it is written? So now they're trying to, they're trying to quote scripture to Jesus. And they tell him, as the word says that he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus' response to them was, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus says, I am that bread of life. So God providing manna in the wilderness was never about Moses, but it was always about Jesus. 
After his resurrection, Jesus meets some guys on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't even recognize him at first. And so he engages them in conversation. And then Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And so what we're looking at here is Jesus is now telling them, it all points at me. It all points to me. So by the time we get to the writer of Hebrews who is saying Jesus is better than the messengers, he's better than the priests, he's better than Moses, and Jesus himself says that. So not only did God say that, and the writer of Hebrews said that, and Moses said that, but now Jesus is saying saying that as well. And the goal is for us to say that with our own lives. And in light of Jesus as God's holy messenger and message, high priest and sacrifice, He is now superior to Moses and the writers of Hebrews has a warning for us. And as Mike mentioned when he talked um, in in the book of Hebrews that that Mike mentioned and and Rick also mentioned that Hebrews kind of runs on two tracks. One track is telling you how Jesus is different from, distinct from, and better than all the other possible things and or people that you could possibly imagine. And then the other track is, now here's a warning. In light of that information, this is what I need you to warn and protect yourself against. All right? So the warning here in Hebrews 3 is against unbelief. And it starts with a callback to a psalm. The readers of Hebrews would have been very familiar with this psalm because the book of Psalms are actually a book of songs and hymns, but they act as a prayer book. So what the, what the people of Israel did was over and over they prayed these psalms. And so this is a psalm they would have been very familiar with. And so in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, it says, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, Harden not your, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared, and I declared on an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now this is from Psalm 95. And before we look at Psalm 95, I want you to see that preamble. It says, so as the Holy Spirit says, and that is there for two reasons. Number one, so that they understood that the Psalm was recontextualized for their point in time. And it's important for them to understand this is not just about some people who were traveling hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This is for some people who right now are dealing with some things, who right now are dealing with a wilderness season, who right now are dealing with some hardships and dealing with some challenges. And so he says, because the Holy Spirit says, so now he's recontextualized it. It's not just some guy. It's not just David who happened to write a psalm way back in the day. This is the Holy Spirit was speaking through him. And so they understood that it was recontextualized. But not only this, when it says the Holy Spirit says, it means that God is speaking himself through his word. And there's an expectation of obedience in light of what is being said by God through the prophet, through not just the, the, the person of David when he wrote the psalm, but now the writer of Hebrews as he repeats the psalm. And so the action that he's asking for is that you don't harden your heart as you did in the rebellion. What rebellion? 
Well, so for that, we need to do a little bit of searching. So when we look back at Psalm 95, we see this kind of like a repeat of the paraphrase. In Psalm 95, it says, Do not harden your heart as you did at Mirabah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me and they tried me, and they, and they had seen what I did. So Mirabah literally means quarreling. And masa means testing. So the situation refers to a specific event and also a posture. The specific event that happened was the people in Israel were struggling because they were out in the wilderness and they didn't have any water. And so they quarreled, it says, with Moses. And they basically just kind of complained to him. We don't have water. We don't have water. Go get us some water. So God goes, God says, why are you quarreling with me? And why are you testing God? And so he goes to God and God says, get that stick that I gave you when you put it in the, in the river and the water's parted on either side. Go get that. Hit that rock and we'll get you some water. So God does this. And so then the people actually get water from a rock and they drink. And it says in Exodus 17, it says, then Moses called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? So it's not just the event that happens. It's also the posture of the heart that questions God and says, is he with us or not? How many times have you asked or wondered, is God with me or not? And so this was the character of that Exodus generation. This is at the heart of this warning. Don't get to the place where you're asking God, are you with me or not? Because what he's saying is he sent Jesus. Of course he's with you. His name is God with you. Emmanuel, God with, yes, I'm with you. I'm with you always. But stop questioning whether or not I'm with you. It had become the question that Israel would ask over and over and over. Every time things got hard or uncertain, then they would complain. And their complaints would question the presence and by extension, the sincerity and the power and the intentions of God. It would eventually cost them every Everything that mattered. Hebrews 3 9 says, Your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That was why I was angry with that generation. I said, Their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my way. So I declared on oath in my anger that they will never enter into my rest. Now, what that means, that word rest, will get taken up in Hebrews 4 next week. But for now, what I think you need to see is this phrase where he says their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. There's a connection between the hardened heart and the wayward heart. And the heart for them was the seat of all their decision-making. It's talked about here in a way where it's not just the way we feel, but it is the decisions we make in light of how it is we feel. Hebrews 12, 3.12 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away. There's the decision from the living God. He goes from don't harden your heart to see that you don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. And the assumption is that the responsibility for that hardened heart and the decisions you make from it are yours. 
A hardened heart is not something that just happens to us. More accurately, it is our response to the things that are happening to us. How do we harden our hearts? How do we, how does it lead us to unbelief? And why is unbelief such a big deal? And why is it worthy of such a, such a dire warning? So that word hardening, if you want to just think about it in very simple terms, it is what happens when your heart refuses to be impressed upon by God. Because every encounter with God causes us to be changed on our insides. And anybody who's known me has heard me say every expression begins with an impression. So if God makes an impression upon you, it then changes your expression. In the same way that a potter makes an impression on a piece of clay, it then changes what that piece of clay expresses. And God calls himself the potter who understands that when I make impressions upon you, that it then affects the way you express yourself out in the world. When we decide that we're done letting God make impressions upon us because we don't believe him, because we question him, because we're suspicious of him, when we stop allowing him to make impressions upon us, then our expression becomes stale. It becomes what it always was or it becomes worse, but it becomes hardened because we have decided we are going to resist the impression that God is making on us. Am I making sense here? Okay, and so what that does is that that changes the way we express ourselves because what happens is when God tries to make an impression on you and you won't let him make that impression, the impression is God saying something. The expression refuses to say yes or amen. And so what happens to us is we get into this place where we are indifferent to God. And once we are indifferent to God, we begin to test God, asking him to prove himself to us. Well, prove that you are God. Prove that you're with me. Prove that you love me. Prove all of these things. And, and then we get to the place where if we don't hear him at that place, and by the way, it's our own fault if we don't hear him at that place, then we start to get prideful. You know what? I'll handle this. I got this. I can deal with this. And then we become our own idols, and we become the, the people that are the yardstick by which we measure whether or not God is present. And so we find ourselves in our lives actually idolizing ourselves by idolizing our comfort and our prosperity. Because if I'm doing well, then other people will say God is in that person's life, in his or her life. And then we claim our comfort and our prosperity as our right. And I know this sounds familiar to some of you because what happens is, is we begin to get very angry when things are uncomfortable or we begin to question God when things get uncomfortable and we're worried about whether or not we should be doing certain things because if my life is not comfortable, then I must not be blessed. If my life is comfortable, then I must be blessed. Jesus was not comfortable on that cross. I guarantee you he did not skip to Malu up to Calvary. And then we presume upon the mercy of God, don't we? Sometimes we just basically say, I'm going to do what I want to do, and somebody might question us, and we'll, well, God's going to forgive me. I'll do what I need to do, and God will forgive me. So we presume upon the mercy of God, and God longs to be himself with us, and he longs to allow us to, have to change who we are so that we can see him more clearly. He doesn't want to change us like he's just toying with us. He wants to change us so that we can see him as he is and love him as he longs to, for, for us to experience love the way he 
loves others and to experience this deeper relationship with us. But he can't do that to the one who has hardened his or her heart toward him and will not accept him. Psalm 95 is interesting because if you just take that little piece out that you repeat in Hebrews and you miss what comes before it, then you, you kind of miss out on the, on the depth of Psalm 95 because it's really interesting because the very first part of it, it just talks about how great God is and how amazing he is and how incredible he is. And then it goes from there to say, and we are the sheep of his pasture. It says, bow down because we are his sheep. And so if we begin there with how great God is and then move from there to how good God is, I think that we would be in such a good place. This is how we cease from hardening our hearts is that we start with how great God is and we move to how good God is. Because when you look at how great God is, he doesn't have to be good. He's got everything. He needs nothing. He is sufficient and we can add nothing to him or take anything away from him. But if that is the God we serve, if most of us were that God, we wouldn't bother with people, would we? Because we have everything we need. And yet you have a God who has everything and desires you. You have a God who can do anything, and yet he sacrificed for each of us. And so when you get in Psalm 95 to just before that passage, it says, oh, if only you would hear his voice. If you read it in Hebrews, it reads like, if you hear his voice, it looks like that. But when you go back to that Psalm, it says, oh, if only you would hear his voice. If only you would look at how great that God is and how good that God is. Oh, if only you would hear his voice. But if only you choose not to. He cannot be the way if we don't accept his direction. He can't be truth to the one who insists on living a lie. He can't be resurrection to those of us who will not die to ourselves or savior to those of us who would rather save ourselves. He cannot be comforter to the unrepentant. He can't be peace for the suspicious and he can't be glorious for the cynical. Oh, if only you would hear his voice. Accept him as your great God and as your good God. We underestimate the power of a hardened heart. When we're not shaped by God, it's not that we're not shaped at all. It's that we're being shaped by something else. When we're not shaped by God, we're being shaped by our indifference. We're being shaped by our cynicism and by our suspicion. We're being shaped by our presumption and by our pride and by our need for comfort. We're being shaped by all of those things. And then we become marked by those things because we become marked by anything that is not love because we have not allowed love to make its impression upon our hearts. Unbelief then becomes our defense of our hardened heart. It's not, when he says unbelief, it's not an inability to understand. It's a refusal to trust. It's an unwillingness to trust. It's not like doubt, because when you think about doubt, you want the promises of God, but your faith is weak, right? With unbelief, your faith is not weak. With unbelief, you know what you're supposed to believe, but you refuse to believe it. 
You've seen God work, as God said, for 40 years in the wilderness. You've seen me work, and now you're still standing up there telling me, I will not act as though you did that stuff I saw you do. I will not behave as though I walked through that water with water on both sides. I walked through on dry land. I will not act like I saw manna come up from the ground. I will not act like there was a cloud in the daytime or a pillar of fire by night. I'm not going to act like I saw that. I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. And I'm going to ask you to show me something new today. Unbelief is Judas taking 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus after he walked with Jesus for three and a half years. It's the children of Israel wanting to choose another leader and go back to Egypt. It's the guards and the Jewish leaders who took money to spread a rumor that the disciples stole Jesus from the tomb when they knew that that's not what happened because they were there all night. If I'm honest, I have on occasion hardened my heart and even crossed over from doubt into unbelief. I have wanted to go back at times in my life to what was and what used to be. So what is the remedy for a hardened heart? Well, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage, but rather, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin and its deceitfulness. So how do we deal with a hardened heart? We deal with it together. We encourage one another. It says day after day is what that literally means. It means to be called to the side of, where it says to encourage, to be called to the side of one another, to exhort one another, to be near one another, to comfort one another, to entreat one another, to strengthen one another, to console one another. That's a really big word, that word encourage one another. But the encourage is as important as the one another because there are times in your life when you got to encourage yourself, but here, the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is saying, but we, in order to deal with our hardened heart, need to encourage one another. There is a sacred witness that he is, he is drawing a picture of right here. In Hebrews 3.14, it says, we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end, we are connected in Christ. And so we are responsible for one another, to carry one another's burdens, to love one another, to look out for one another, to exhort one another. We are connected in Christ and we are called to love one another. And if you want to know what that means to love your brother or sister, just go to 1 Corinthians 13 and be patient and be kind and not insist on your own way and all that other really uncomfortable, icky stuff that we all don't want to do. And yet it is the stuff that will make this amazing impression upon us and it will mark us as the people of God. Our identity is in him and so he becomes our strength. He becomes the way that we're able to do all of this stuff. And so this is the month of March, and we are spending some time praying. And if you haven't signed up for prayer yet, please feel free to do that. But at the end of the day, what you want to be able to do is lean into what it means to pray to God, to pray for one another, to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine, to pray for our brothers and sisters in Russia who are getting carried along in this tide, to all of the things that are happening, to, to pray along with our with our our 
our people of color, our brothers and sisters of color who are dealing with all kinds of stuff just here in America, in this country. One of my favorite things about Eric Knox is that he never, ever, ever forgets that what God looks like is going to be lived out in your hands and feet here in the earth. Yeah. And so I think of him often. He was one of the first people to truly explain the gospel to me in very practical, very real terms. And I'd been walking with Jesus for a really long time, but he taught me how to put my feet on the ground. But another thing he said to me, you never knew it changed my life when he said, there's no way you can have a relationship with Jesus outside of community of people. He said that to me one day in, in my office, and I was just like, nah, me and God, we got this thing. I don't need this. And, and so, of course, instead of telling him he was wrong, I just studied. And I was like, dang it, that Eric Knox, he's right. <laughs> and before I close today, what I want to do is I, I, I want us to think about that word today in that passage. It says, today, if you will not harden your heart, while it is called today. And that's important because what it does is it marks this entire chapter as an invitation. If I say to you, we should get lunch. We should hang out, but I don't give you a day or a time or a place. It's not real. I ain't really ready to see you. But if I give you a day and I give you a time and I give you a place, that means that I'm not only ready for you, but it means that I am, I am, the, the invitation is real. So this says today, today God is calling us today. Today he wants you to not harden your heart. Today, he's actually poking somebody and saying, hey, you don't really know me or you haven't really had, a, had, a, had an encounter with me, but I'm poking you today. Today, oh, if only today, you would not harden your heart. One of my favorite things that my mom used to do, and everybody in here has either done it or you have had it done to you, is when your parent says to you to do a thing and you say, why? And they say, because I said so. Right? Who knows because I said so? Right. There's some people who are pretending they didn't know about because I, but you all know what it means when somebody says, because I said so. And so you need to understand that God throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is saying, because I said so. Because I said so. And you're saying, well, when did you say it? He says, I said it with Jesus. And what I need you to learn how to do is speak fluent Jesus in this world. That is all this love is about. That is all my impression upon you is about. Is that I'm trying to teach you how to speak fluent Jesus. Because that's the language I speak. When I speak, I speak Jesus. And so what he wants each and every one of us to do, he says, I said so. So when he says, because I said so, it brings with it authority, right? Somebody who has the nerve to say, because I said so, feels they have a sense of authority with which to say. And the thing that they said, they expect it to be obeyed. So now you have Jesus as the, because I said so of God in the earth, who carries the authority of God with him in the earth. And we need to learn how to speak fluent Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are who you say you are, and we are yours. Father, I pray that each and every person who is having a conversation with you right now 
would know that today is the day, that now is the moment, that this is the time that you are asking them. You are actually offering them an invitation to an encounter with you. Father, for those of us who know you, you have spoken to us through your word today because we recognize ourselves in some of what has been said. At the end of the day, God, teach us to speak fluent Jesus. Teach us to be people in this world who understand that you have said what you have said and that our entire lives are to be simply a yes and amen, to be a confession, an agreement that you are who you say you are and that you do what you say you do. Make us promise keepers like you are. Make us strong like you are. Make us people who are humble the way you are. Make us servants like you are. Teach us to speak you in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.